Don't you just love it when you can confidently say that someone has your back? Hi, Dave Lee here, and that's the feeling I have with UCARE. Anytime I call them up with a Medicare question, I know without a doubt that a real person will answer, and they will work through my issues no matter how long it takes, and they won't hang up until I completely understand what's going on. Their people and customer service are second to none, and it's why UCARE has people-powered health plans. Don't hesitate to reach out to UCARE for help. Learn more at UCARE.org slash Medicare. This paid endorsement brought to you by UCARE. Today on my first concert, good friends with with everybody in town. You know they were they they'd have they'd have boat parties out on the St. Croix. Mm-hmm. You know uh, they they were just uh, it it was a great time to be in a local band. And if you were in a successful local band like the Underbeats, you were probably driving a car that was worth as much as your parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Lee here with Davide Razzo. We're glad to have you back with us on My First Concert. It's being brought to you by a lot of good friends of ours, the Chanhassen Dinner Theater, by Starbank.net, by UCARE, and our friends Jeff and everybody over at AquariusHomeServices.com. Check out the special deal I have going right now, by the way, as we speak. And brought to you by the Minnesota Propane Association. We have some exciting news to tell you about as well. Author, uh, musician, uh, Minnesota-born, uh, Rick Shefchik is with us here. A pretty good golfer, too, I might add. And uh, Rick was with us last week. We talked about his first concert, which was the Beach Boys back in 66 in Duluth. Went with his brother, double-dated. That's pretty. That's something I've never done with my brother, I guarantee you. He wouldn't have let me. But uh, that's pretty cool that you both had a date and went to that. And, of course, uh, Beach Boys in 66 had just come out with Pet Sounds. So how did you follow up that concert? Do you know what the next one was that you saw? I mean, you, Rick, you've seen some money. You write about them. Your research is tremendous. But uh, what happened shortly after the Beach Boys? And Because how do you see a band that big on the second one? The second concert I saw was also at the Duluth Arena, and that was uh, the Love and Spoonful. And they um, uh they had the uh, Crying Shames, the Chicago band, <laughs> opening up for them. And in both of them, this is not, now 1967, they were both huge uh, on the charts at that And at the that Crying point. Shames big hit was? Cry, uh, Sugar and Spice. And uh, let's see, then they had uh, I Want to Meet You. Those were sort of back-to-back hits. Um, and and then their careers uh, did a little tapering off. But, uh, mm-hmm. boy, if you can find that first Crying Shames album... Um, it was uh, just packed with songs. They they were trying to sound like the birds on some of the songs, and they had a songwriter named Jim Fares, who to this he's he's still around. Um, don't think he's he's working too much anymore, but he wrote so many good songs for that band. So their first two or three albums were exceptional. But that's you know. Um, <sighs> it's just one of those things that you remember from when you were a kid. Yeah. Uh, and the next concert that came through um, Duluth that I should have seen, and I don't know why I didn't, was the Hollies, and they uh, were opened for by uh, Herman's Hermits. Oh, uh, man. I, I have friends who went to that concert and said that they still remember how great that was. And as the years have gone on, I've become so much uh, more of a Hollies fan than I even was at the time. I, I agree. Yep. I love their singles. Yep. But you know, if if you start going track by track on some of their albums from the mid '60s, and you realize um, 
I don't think that there was a band outside of the Beatles that were doing anything nearly as uh, as complex and interesting with vocals as the Hollies were doing back then. And I'm sure they sounded great on stage, and I wish I'd seen them, but I hadn't. So maybe that's another, um, you you could do a Concerts I Wish I'd Seen uh, <laughs> podcast. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'd throw a Led Zeppelin in there because I never saw that. I never did either, yeah, no. That would have been good. Um, but I have seen Taylor Swift, so. And I have not. Yeah. I had a chance to meet her, too, but as like so many others, you get a brief meeting. But at that short time, she was very humble, very nice, which was kind of refreshing. Uh, let me ask you about a book you wrote. Now, we talked last week, and folks, if you didn't hear it, uh, Blood in the Tracks is uh, a great new book that Rick and Paul have authored together. And it's it's available now, and it is quite popular right out of the shoot. There was another book that you did that was very popular after you'd written it as well, that delves into a little bit of the 60s music uh, here in Minnesota. Uh, let's, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, the name of the book was Everybody's Heard About the Bird. The Even uh, Family Guy has done a bit, a half-hour bit <laughs> on that song. It's, it's really remarkable how the song Surf and Bird continues to resonate through society. And some people, when they hear it, they think, oh, my God. God, that's the that's the worst earworm earworm I, I've ever heard, and and other people just well they appreciate it for what it is. It 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 was a novelty song, mm-hmm. um, big and, one, and it was recorded basically right across the hall from where we're we're talking right yes, now. Yes, you know the yes. stu- you know the you know the history of this studio. Don't yes, you? Uh, this studio back in the uh, uh, late fifties and early sixties was called K Bank, and uh, the uh, the um, Trash men were looking for, a, they were becoming a really, really popular band in the Twin Cities. And they were looking for a single to sort of capitalize on the fact that uh, they were drawing more and more people to their dances. And no one was doing tribute songs and they were, everybody was original, weren't they? Uh, actually, not so much back then. Really? Um, it, it, there really weren't that many bands recording at all back hmm. then. Um K-Bank Studio basically was being um, used by uh, by polka bands and uh, and jazz quintets. Uh, there were very, I was going to say there were very few rock bands that recorded here before the Trashmen, but of course the most notable one was when Bobby V came in and recorded Susie Baby here in 1959. Uh, and then the uh, the Men re-recorded a song called Mule Skinner Blues here in 1960. They'd already done it at a, uh, uh, a Wisconsin uh, Sock Rapids uh, studio, um, and it was getting a little airplay in Wisconsin. Another but, unique song. <laughs> yes, um, based on an old uh, Jimmy Rogers uh, tune, which, and I think even even then, Jimmy Rogers probably pulled it out of you know the old trad bag, you know, yeah. that had been done for you know, decades before that. But uh, Mule Skinner Blues rose to the top 10, um, re-recorded here um, and released on the Soma record label. And uh, Dave Dudley recorded Six Days on the Road in this studio. And, I did not know that. And that became... He's a, a Stevens Point, Wisconsin guy. Yes, he is. Yep. But he was working as a country DJ in the Twin Cities and playing at the Flame Club, which was a country western bar uh, downtown. No kidding. And and, and <laughs> this great song. Oh, it's 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 still one of my all time favorites. Yeah. And of course, wow. la- last week we were talking about uh, the Flying Burrito Brothers. They recorded a version of Six Days on the Road, which is really great too. <laughs> you know, in their uh, yeah in their country rock style. But Dave got the money to record 
uh, six days on the road because he was hit by a car as he was loading his equipment uh, into his car outside of a gig at the flame. And um, he was laid up for several months, but he took the insurance money that he got from being hit by the car and used that to uh, book recording time here at uh, K-Bank. So he had confidence in his song. Well, something. not really, because it was the last one that he recorded. No. A friend of his from Nashville had given it to him and said uh, I th- yeah, it, it had been rejected by several other um, uh, recording artists. And finally, uh, this friend of his from Nashville said, look, if, if you're going to be doing a session, uh, give this one a try. And Dave's just put it in his guitar case and didn't really think too much about it. But... He uh, he had some extra time at the end of this session that he had paid for with his insurance money, hmm. and he had a guitarist named Jimmy Colvard who um, was playing country uh, country bars around here. Uh, probably the best guitarist that was operating in that particular field at hmm. the time. So he brings Jimmy Colvard in and said, "Well, let's let's." let's give this thing a try. And Jimmy had this interesting clawing technique. You know, if you think about six days on the road, it's got that dear, 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 dear kind yeah, of guitar life. sound to yeah. it yeah. that nobody was doing before. And that was Jimmy Colvard made it up right on the spot. Wow. And it, it, and right here, right here. And, uh, the song was a surprise smash. Oh, um, huge Mercury Records signed Dave Dudley away from Soma and Jimmy Colvard ended up going to Nashville and being a really well-respected session guitarist for quite a while. So those are the kinds of stories that uh, oh, you know kind of it. popped up out of this That's book. So and awesome. this is all prior to the uh, um, uh, the Trash Men hmm. coming in here and recording Surfing Bird. Wow. I wonder if yeah. Truck Driving Son of a Gun was on that album too. I mean, it's <laughs> one of my favorites. I love that song, <laughs> yeah. but I don't know if that was recorded yeah. here or not. Yeah, I don't either. But that I never knew that about Six Days in the Road, and that's one of those iconic country songs. That, Wow, that's a great stuff. Hey, Rick Shefchick is with us. Uh, we got much more to talk about on the book. I keep doing these digressions. I apologize, but that's the beauty of the show. I thought I was the one that did the digression. Yeah, well, <laughs> maybe maybe we are. Davide is going to try to bring us back to, uh, on pace here when he comes in, because I know he's got another question for you, Rick. So right. ha- hang on there uh, just a second on that. I do want to thank uh, Jeff and everybody at Aquarius Home Services for making this possible. Uh, unbeatable home comfort is back too i mean this is something i want you to listen to this because aquarius home services the fall blowout sale uh extended now until november 18th no kidding so once you drive back uh, get out there and, and and find out what they have or better yet just go online at aquariushomeservices.com and find out about this amazing 25 percent discount on a complete whole home heating and cooling system or whole home kinetical water treatment system Uh, Whether it's upgrading the old furnace and air conditioning or maybe elevating your home's water quality, uh, Aquarius is is your answer. It's that simple. And maybe you have the uh, city-based water or maybe you have a well water, but they have solutions for both. And just because you're living in Moundsview doesn't mean you have the same water that they have uh, over Minnetonka. Or if you're living in Lilydale, the water isn't the same as it is in the city of St. Paul. What you want to do is have them come over and test it for free. They'll do that. But my goodness, they got 25% going, 25% savings going right now. I mean, this offer before winter hits hits us, and that can be relentless like it was last year. I haven't forgotten. But their high-efficiency furnaces bring uh, just the premium comfort and also financial benefits. So don't miss out on on this great chance 
for the ultimate home upgrade and substantial 25% off savings. My goodness, Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended. Uh, and they're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Rick Shefchik is with us. We were talking about uh, uh, several books. Blood in the Tracks is his current. We're talking about this book previously. When did you publish this one, by the way? That was published in 2015. And it was very popular, and it's still available. Yeah, it is still available. It, it was so popular that the night we did the signing at uh, the Electric Fetus, uh, we we sold every book we had before the event actually started, <laughs> and and then sold all of the extra books that were brought over. I think another uh, forty or so um, brought over from the publisher. Um, and this this was I think the last week of November, and um, within two weeks there wasn't a copy to be had in in the Twin Cities. Maybe you could find one somewhere uh, up in Duluth or uh, on the range or something like that, but. Um, I went to probably half a dozen bookstores and uh, asked about the book, and they all said, "Can you get us some?" Yeah, there's no Amazon <laughs> then, right? Uh, Fifteen. Oh no, there there was oh, yeah. Amazon. Was yeah, oh, yeah, but uh, but they were all sold out of theirs too. I mean, mm. the entire first run sold out in probably three weeks. Well, congrats wow. on that, uh, Davide. You had a question yeah. for Rick. I mean, I I have a son. He's an aspiring writer. Mm-hmm. So uh, my question to you is, how do you get to write about music? And I mean, you, you must have done a lot of research or you can tell me a little bit sure. about that. I can explain how I ended up doing it. Uh, but I think another way of looking at the issue is what would somebody just getting into the business have to do now to, uh, to end up writing about music, writing books about music? Um, and I think that the short answer there is that you have to um, you have to start writing about music for free, uh, you know. And I hate to say that I hate to say that to a musician, you know, <laughs> because uh, people are always asking musicians, "Hey, listen, can can you come and play for my little gig here? It's only an hour or two, and I can't pay you, but it's good exposure." <laughs> well, you can't eat exposure, right. but unfortunately, we all have to start somewhere. And, you know, unless you're hired by a, a publication that's going to give you a paycheck and has asked you to write about music, if you really want to do it, you just start doing it. Mm-hmm. You find any place that you can. And I did kind of start that way. Um, but I, I, I did have a, an English degree, and uh, I applied at the Duluth News Tribune for a, uh, uh, for a reporter job um, after college. And I had been an intern there uh, for two summers when when I was in college, so I so I had a connection and I had an intention of going into uh, into journalism, uh, but I never really thought about being a music writer as such. In fact, even in college when I re- worked for the college paper, um, I don't really recall ever doing any reviews. But when I got to uh, um, well, before I started at the Duluth News Tribune, there was a uh, a weekly in Duluth called the Port Guardian, and I started writing for them, but I wasn't paid for it. It was just a chance to, uh, to exposure, start, exposure, yeah. Yeah. exactly. Start working on my chops, um, and uh, and to do something that I really enjoyed without feeling the pressure of, you know, if, if I can't get paid for this, then, you know, I'm, I'm a failure. You know, I was doing something else to make money at the time. So this was something that was just sort of keeping my hand in, uh, in a, in a different uh, field that I really um, got pleasure out of. But once I started working at the news tribune, at first I was hired as a copy editor. 
um, because they didn't have any reporter openings. And that turned out to be great for me because I really learned what it takes to, to shape a story for a newspaper. Um, you know, I'd done all right in college writing for the newspaper there, but when I started editing other people's stories, that was an eye-opening experience that um, what, what I thought was acceptable to get into newsprint really wasn't. You had to be much tougher on the people you were editing, and you had to be a lot tougher on yourself. So that was a great experience. But while I was doing that, they didn't have an arts or entertainment editor. They didn't have a reporter doing any kind of concert reviews. So I just volunteered to do that. Uh, I was getting paid to do something else. But if a concert came into town, I, I would say, you know, are you willing to let me go down to the arena? And, you know, the first one that, that I can recall doing was a B.J. Thomas concert. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, that review turned out okay, so they let me keep doing it. It wasn't like they were giving me any extra money for it, but that eventually evolved into about half of my job up there. I went from the copy desk to becoming the arts and entertainment editor at the Duluth News Tribune. And in fact, I pretty much created that job. They've had one there ever since, but they didn't when I was there. And uh, I like to think that the fact that uh, I was successful at the reviews that I was doing really helped them see the value of having that kind of a position at the newspaper. And then I started uh, working at the Pioneer Press and I was hired as a TV critic. Uh, and I had been doing both movie and television reviews as part of my job in Duluth. And then it became my full-time job in St. Paul to be a, a, a media critic. Um, but I wanted to keep my hand in with music, so I, I continued to volunteer to do concert reviews and record reviews, and I ended up doing a lot of that uh, in addition to what they were paying me to do. Um, so I, I guess that's the answer, is that if it's something that you're passionate about, don't be afraid to, uh, um, to work a little extra on top of whatever it is that you're doing to make a living, to, to just demonstrate that this is something that you can do. And you'll get better at it the more you do it, and eventually somebody may say, hey, I'd like to hire you to do that. <laughs> you know, and that's not going to happen right out of the box, but it can happen. Yeah. And right. 06, you leave the paper and you decide to become a, no a novelist. Or about 06, wasn't it? Somewhere near Yeah, I, I took a buyout in 2006. And I had already uh, had a novel accepted um, by a publisher. And so when the buyout opportunity came along, I thought, I always wanted to be an author. That was coming out of college. That was my goal. Uh, working as a journalist was uh, was exciting. It was fulfilling. It paid the bills, but that was not what I had intended to do with my life. And so I had uh, worked on a few scripts, uh, a, a few manuscripts, uh, while I was working for the uh, Saint Paul Pioneer Press. Um, but it wasn't until uh, the third one that I wrote that. Uh, that it was accepted. I got an advance and I thought if I'm ever going to really make this happen, I'm going to have to devote full time to it. So I took the buyout and I've been writing full time ever since. Yeah. And we talked about music, Davide, but uh, Rick, I, and I remember when his first book came out, actually, I think I may have had you on the air as a guest, uh, but you have uh, written one. So all my Packer fans out there, Packer lovers, Frozen Tundra. Yes. That was my third novel. Third in the Sam Scarda detective series. Yes. Yeah, Sam was your guy. Yep. And Frozen Tundra was about, I love the premise of this one. It was about the possibility that the Packers could be taken into private ownership. 
Um, one of the things that I've always admired about the Packers is that they're they're publicly held and that nothing that they do is done to enrich anybody in particular. Mm-hmm. But um, it obviously it's a gold mine. Sure, uh, it's one of the most successful franchises in football, and it, it it struck me that it wouldn't be beyond the realm of possibility that one of the board members say would try to convince the other board members or at least a majority of them to take it private for profit. And one of the inducements was going to be to bring a Super Bowl to Green Bay. And that that that's all part of the the plot that I dreamed mm-hmm. up here. But uh, of course, there had to be a few murders involved. For, sure, well, <laughs> you, you were a newspaper writer, yes, that, yeah, exactly. Probably had a few of those to write about as well. And yep. they, uh, but Frozen Tundra, and, and that's available, I'm sure, online. Is it not? Or? You can get it online. Mm-hmm. I don't think you'd find it in a yeah. bookstore right now. And you wrote one on Fenway, on, I on baseball, too. Yeah, my second Sam Scarda novel was called Green Monster. Yes. And that was based on the possible premise that the curse-busting uh, World Series win that the Red Sox had in 2003 mm-hmm. uh, might have been a fixed World Series. Not that I think that that's what happened. But that's what the book, that's but the that fiction. But that was the premise of the book, right. Yeah. Somebody was claiming it was fixed and uh, demanding uh, a, a multi-million dollar ransom from the owners of the Red Sox to yeah. keep it quiet. Yeah, <laughs> today they just hacked their computers. <laughs> right. yeah. Exactly. Uh, Rick Shefchik yeah. is with us. So we're, we're, we're going to talk music again, I promise. We'll do it right after we talk about uh, power outages at your home or business. I bring this up because we recently had some here in... Uh, there's a group called the North American Electric Reliability Corporation, which you may not have known about, but anyway, they issued their highest alert ever. And so the Minnesota Propane Association, who we've talked about on this show before, wants you to know that installing a propane generator is going to ensure that peace of mind. So when the power goes out, like it did here just a couple of weeks ago, uh, that you have an opportunity to use that propane that powers your generator, and that can also power the major appliances in your home and everything's on-site stored. That's energy independent of the grid, which I think is remarkable. But uh, again, you want the installation of propane appliances. You want to know about that instead of electric appliances in your home or business. Uh, You should know it's going to reduce the size and cost of a generator as well. This is all information that is well worth your time to learn about because maybe you don't know much about it. And I understand that. But imagine running all your gas appliances at one time versus having to pick and choose which electric ones to run during a power outage. Their website, uh, the Minnesota Propane Association, says go to propane.com and learn about all the things that propane can do. Not just what I'm talking about. There's much more, too, that we've chatted about in the past. But it is reliable. It is affordable. And it's safe. It's propane. Learn about it. It's the energy for everybody. Find out more about generators and propane appliances by simply, again, going to propane.com. Everybody's heard about the bird. And I don't know if there's one person... uh, at the, in that generation that didn't try to sing that at some time because it was just so popular and so catchy. Well, and, I pity their throat if they tried. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, w- it was a challenge. But uh, what else did you learn in, when you wrote about that uh, book musically here in the Twin Cities? Mostly what uh, I learned that I didn't know as much about was the connection between all of the musicians, that they all knew each other. They, uh, they uh, sort of drifted into each other's bands from time to time. Um, you know, of course, the heyday of of the Minneapolis uh, St. Paul music scene was uh, 64 to 66. Um, before 64, um, there weren't many bands making records. 
um, after 66, they were all trying to make records, but they couldn't get airplay because all of a sudden the, the, uh, uh, the, the corporate takeover of radio began yeah. and they started uh, tightening up all of the playlists and maybe one band per top 40 could, yep. g- local band could get a record. And there played. were, there were different, um, you know, through the years, different decades or, and maybe, and maybe decades is too uh, long a time, but there were different time periods where uh, radio, having been in it, wanted records two and a half minutes. Mm-hmm. Wanted a record three minutes. Then we got to a little bit to four minutes. And and so then I suppose the artists at that time kind of had to keep the record to a certain length. Well, and you have to give Bob Dylan credit for that too, because like a Rolling Stone, I think uh, topped out at uh, over five minutes. Yeah. And Columbia had a lot of uh, guts, really, to release that as a single. Um, and I think most artists would have thought, well, I, why why bother to suggest to my label that we put out a six-minute song as a single because radio will never play it, and I, wa- I want to be played on sure. the radio. Uh, but Dylan was a, a revolutionary in so many different ways, and he's the one that finally kind of smashed that, uh, that taboo. Now, it's not like every song... After that, you know, from all artists, ended up being six minutes. You know that no. two that two and a half minute thing got stretched a little bit, but at least to maybe three minutes, three plus. Well, three thirty, I remember, was a long time. Three minutes and thirty songs better. Uh, three minutes and thirty uh, seconds better be a really good song. Right. Yeah, because <laughs> we're taking a lot of mm-hmm. time to play that. Although I remember as a kid too, you know the. Your buddies would say, hey, have you heard the Iron Butterfly in a Gata DeVita album version? You know, we never heard on radio. The album version is great. And, of course, you're waiting for all of the. You can't wait to, you know, listen to however long that went. But there were those songs. That was 19 minutes, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Well, in the radio business, if you were able to play it on the night shift, that, you know, I can guarantee there was some hootie doody going on in the studio. (laughs) That's right. When the 19-minute song got played. Yeah. so anyway, we're talking about these musicians getting to know each other. They all knew each other. And they'd have poker parties after their gigs. You wow. know, they'd they'd have battle of the bands. You'd have the underbeats, the accents, the uh, castaways. Um, uh, you know, the, the trash men were kind of out on the road a little bit more often, leaving the local scene a, a little bit more to some of these bands that were coming up. But the fr- the the cover of my book. Um, everybody's heard about the bird doesn't have the trash men on it. It's got the underbeats on it because mm-hmm. the underbeats were, uh, even by the trash men were considered the best band in the twin cities, you know, from, uh, from 63, right up until they left for Los Angeles in 1968. Uh, everybody wanted to play like, uh, the underbeats. Uh, they wanted to, um, they wanted to be on the bill with them. Uh, they were uh, just absolutely, you know, the standard of, of what mm-hmm. a good local rock band should be. And But they were buddies with everybody. I mean, seriously, Jim Johnson, uh, the leader of that band, was uh, um, good friends with, with everybody in town. You know, they were, they'd, they'd have, they'd have boat parties out on the St. Croix. Mm-hmm. You know. uh, they, they were just, uh, it, it was a great time to be in a local band. And if you were in a successful local band like the Underbeats, you were probably driving a car that was worth as much as your parents' house. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, how did it work out in LA for the Trashmen? Well, uh, they changed their name to Gypsy when they moved out to LA. And uh, they their first album, a double album, was a, uh, was a really big success. Uh, they had a little top 40 play with uh, um, their first single, 
the album itself was uh, almost a staple on FM um, radio, but they recorded uh, several subsequent albums and uh, they didn't do as well. And by 73 or four, Gypsy had pretty much disbanded. We're talking with Rick Chefcheck here on uh, My First Concert, which you can download on Apple, Spotify, at talknorth.com as well. And uh, Rick's an author of a number of books, but notably uh, the music books we've been talking about today. The other thing I'd bring up with you, Rick, is your own personal musicianship. So you, you, you're at Duluth, you go to Dartmouth, you come back. Uh, so were you playing gigs yourself? Uh, well, my first band was a high school band, which mm -hmm. everybody should have that experience doing. I mean, it's yeah. just, it, it, it was so much fun. We played uh, from uh, the fall of 67 to the spring of 68. And, uh, you know, that was an interesting period because we were doing Beatles, uh, uh, Paul Revere and the Raiders, a uh, little bit of Rolling Stones, uh, a lot of Young Rascals. We absolutely loved the Rascals. They were such a great band uh, to, to play for a dancing crowd. And, and kids were still dancing then. But if you remember that era from 67 to 68, what was happening was Jimi Hendrix was starting to become a really important artist. Cream had uh, become pretty much the uh, the talk about band uh, outside of the, maybe the Beatles. Um, and music was really evolving into a, a, a heavier, uh, you know, we were one year away from uh, uh, Led Zeppelin becoming popular and and we could see it at our dance gigs um, that kids were starting to get more interested in the heavier psychedelic sounds there wasn't quite as much dancing going on the songs that we had been playing that used to be popular were now considered maybe just you know a little bit corny maybe not that might yeah, not I be got quite, you. Yeah, uh, was Steppenwolf moving into the scene at the same time? Uh, yeah, Steppenwolf. Uh, I think uh, Born to Be Wild was '68. Uh, yeah. I think they probably had just hit the radio at this point. Anyway, um, I was uh, I was still deeply interested in music, but at that point, I was just thinking that the kind of band that we had been and wanted to be was really starting to fall out of favor. And I were was, you able to, you weren't able to play bars at that age, were you? No, no. These are all high school dances. Yeah. And if you go back to the, uh, the bands that I wrote about and everybody's heard about the bird right up through, uh, 67, 68, this same period, they were all playing teen dances. There was no alcohol. You know, you'd go out to uh, big Reggie's, uh, out in Excelsior and, uh, you know, kids were drinking out in the parking lot, but they sure couldn't drink inside. <laughs> Mm -hmm. um, and that that was the business model. Um, the bands that were playing in bars uh, probably weren't making anywhere near as much money as uh, as the underbeats were making playing for teenagers at uh, at dry events. Um, so uh, yeah, the uh, um, the the alcohol thing was was really not a factor until later. But the, the, but again, this sort of reflects um, the baby boomers starting to age too. Um, so uh, the scene just was changing and I didn't feel comfortable being in a band doing um, heavy uh, psychedelic music. It just wasn't really what I was interested in doing at the time. So I didn't play again uh, with a group until after I got out of college. I, I did a, a, a singer songwriter solo thing when I was in college. I played a couple of the pubs uh, in Hanover, New Hampshire, and that was kind of fun, but that was, that's where I learned that, you know, if you if you if you want to get into the music business and they don't have a lot of money, then you better play for a bowl of soup or something. Yeah. Because like writing. Yes. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it was it was very much the same thing. So I would play for a little exposure. Um, 
but then I, I formed a, a a trio up in Duluth after, well, actually I was in two bands. One, the Blind Texas Salamanders, a bunch of buddies of mine. Okay. Um, we, Do you even know how you came up with that name? Uh, yeah, it was off the uh, off of a plastic drinking cup, uh, <laughs> which uh, <laughs> was given out like by 7-Eleven or something. Yeah. And it was a series of unusual desert animals. <laughs> And we, Which would have made a great name itself. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah, we were the unusual designate. So we were we were a bit of a, a of a country rock band. Yeah, and then uh, and then we put together a. Well, tree. were you playing Graham Parsons stuff? Too, oh, then? you bet, yeah. a, a ton of it. Um, and my next band, we played a lot of Graham Parsons stuff too. It was called Filtered Water, um, and we. I'll give Eric Eskel a credit for uh, naming our band. No, is that right? Yeah, he came up with that name because uh, in Duluth at the time, this is like 1976, you know, the taconite tailings that were ending up in Lake Superior yeah. was, it was a very big story. Uh, made Miles Lord's career, I think, ruling on that case. But uh, um, all of the restaurants in town would put up a sign in their window saying, we have filtered water. And so Eric said, well, there's free advertising for him. <laughs> <laughs> and so, so we did that. Oh, we, we did some of my original songs, but mostly it was um, um, kind of uh, a little country rock, a little Beatles, a little uh, mm -hmm. um, soft rock kind of stuff, some Eagles. It was, uh, you know, it, was, it was a really nice band. We did that for a few years. And then I wasn't in a band until I was uh, at the St. Paul Pioneer Press, and they asked us to put together a group for a Christmas party. Uh oh, and uh -oh. and so I sent out a memo to people around the office said, "Does anybody uh, want to help form a band here for this party?" And we got a drummer, we got a bass player, we got a, a guitar player, some vocalists, and uh, we decided, you know, this is this is kind of fun. It, we weren't that bad at the party, but there was potential to be a lot better. <laughs> and, well said. <laughs> and and we knew we wanted to do oldies. You know, we weren't going to be doing the contemporary stuff. We were all at this point, I think, probably in our 40s, something mm -hmm. like that. So uh, we figured, okay, we're a newspaper band. We're doing oldies. Let's call ourselves Yesterday's News. <laughs> Perfect. And, and, Perfect. And we, we played together for about 12 years. And at one point, we were actually playing bars. We we got good enough that I really felt like we were uh, one of the one of the better professional bands doing what we were doing in town. But you know there was a lot of changing personnel, especially mm. in the newspaper business. You know people come and go, they yep. leave town, whatever. Uh, at our peak, I, th I thought we were just outstanding. But you know you don't stay at your peak forever and. Well, your hours, I can't even imagine. You're writing, and, which is, takes a lot of hours, and and uh, then you're playing in a band. So, And I had young kids, too. Yeah. Uh, now, now, speaking of kids, and this has come up many times on this show, my first concert, I'm going to ask you when we come back about sure. this, taking your kids to a concert. And I'm guessing a guy from the, the music world probably did that. And we'll ask you about that in a minute. Rick Shefchik is with us. He's got a brand new book out called Blood in the Tracks. And it's about blood on the tracks. And it's uh, getting great reviews to start off. It just came out. Uh, so you can pick it up wherever you get your books. But it's the the Dylan story with a Minnesota connection that didn't get recognized for many years. And really until kind of recently, I guess. So uh, find out about that book as well. Uh, if you want to be entertained, and I know we all want to be. Get out to the Chanhassen Dinner Theaters or talk with Rick about these bands and playing in a lot of venues. And they have a venue out there at the Chanhassen Dinner Theater. So you get the main stage where the great, great reception of Jersey Boys continues over there. If you haven't seen that, get out there, have dinner, enjoy it. It's awesome. 
There's another part of the theater where they have other things going, the comedy club and Brindisi's Pub, but also that concert area they have. And I've been there many times, and the acoustics in there are so good. The bands are uh, outstanding. You know, Rick's been talking about the talent in this town then and now, and you see it on full display every week. Uh, sometimes it's weekdays, if that's better for you, weekends certainly. And they're doing all sorts of shows, including a lot of tribute shows. So go to their website, chanhassendt.com. Uh, make sure you get over and see uh, the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons in Jersey Boys. This rendition by uh, the great Michael Brindisi is really, really good. And you can decide that for yourself. I think pretty sure you're going to walk away coming out of there singing Walk Like a Man or, or um, you know, Big Girls or Sherry, whatever you might be humming on your way out of there. It's really good. Uh, but go to chanhassendt.com and get that book ASAP. Hey, uh, Rick Shefchek is with us. Okay, Rick, uh, musician, writer, author, uh, and you have children. Do you take them to their first concert? Yes. Um, I'm not sure that I took my son to his first concert, but uh, our, our daughter, who's uh, three and a half years older than our son, um, first asked to go to a concert uh, when she was about 11 years old. She wanted to see Alanis Morissette when her Jagged Little Pill album was mm. very, very popular. Yeah, and, um, and I, as I recall, it was at... Uh, at uh, Target Center, but that you know, I may be dating myself there. Uh, that that's what I, that's what I remember. And well, let's see that that had to be more than twenty years ago. Um, but uh, she was very interested in my record collection. She still absolutely loves music, and uh, and I think she's probably more of a fan of the stuff that uh, she heard from the cds i owned than she is of anything that's more contemporary now but uh, at the time she wanted to see alanis morissette and uh, it was a um i i liked the songs on jagged little pill too so we had a good time there um i know she enjoyed the experience um and uh i i don't think that there were any traumas that occurred um <laughs> as as young as she was uh i i think she might have felt that uh the, you know the whole atmosphere maybe was uh, a little intense compared to anything that she had experienced before but one thing that i i made a point of doing with both my son and my daughter was uh i i brought them both individually to a bob dylan concert mm. I wow. I thought that that was uh, something that they absolutely would uh, would thank me for later on and be very glad that they did. Uh, so I took my daughter first, and uh, um, it was it was at the St. Paul Civic Center, and it was uh, or or possibly possibly it was at the X. See, I I, I sort of forget <laughs> what the transition years were between right. the Civic Center and the X. Um, but uh, yeah, about two thousand, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah, it was two thousand, right when I moved here. Mm -hmm. So it could yeah, it it could have been the X. Now that I think about it, um, and uh, she loved the show. Uh, Dylan was in fine form. It was probably the fourth time that I'd seen him, um, and uh, we were really enjoying the show. Really happy that we went. Uh, and then probably about three, four years later. Um, I took my son David to see Bob Dylan, and I'm pretty sure that was also at the X. Uh, and it wasn't as good a show. I mean, Dylan's voice had notice, noticeably deteriorated, um, but the uh, um, 
Well, aside from the fact that he got to see Bob Dylan, which was the most important thing, you know, he'll always be glad he did. But the Foo Fighters opened up for Dylan. I was at that show. Wow. Yes. And, uh, uh, Acoustic. Yes, they, they uh, because I as I recall, it wasn't Dave Grohl in a cast? He yes, was, he was sitting. They in sat a, down. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, they they had to do acoustic, I guess, because he couldn't move around well. But that was phenomenal. I thought he was great. And you know, when you asked me about uh, in the previous episode about th- three acts that I would like to put together, hey, don't on change show. that because I'm going to ask you one more time. Then I'm going to give you ch- <laughs> I'm going to give you a chance to revise that at the very end of this. Well, I would consider the Foo Fighters because okay. I think they're outstanding. Um, anyway, my son loved them anyway. You know, he already had some of their CDs. So yeah. that, that was a real bonus for him. Did you, do you think that you crossed musically like that with your parents? Because I know my dad and I were on different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. He was a musician. And of course, you know, we all, as kids, I mean, that was the hip thing, right? There was rock and roll and whoever it might be. And we were all kind of into that. Uh, he was not. Now, eventually yeah. he, he started singing with my brother as well. They both started singing Beatles songs and he came to recognize McCartney and Lennon as he actually, when he sat down and listened to their music, he realized that they were pretty good music writers. And so he kind of leaned over a little bit, but how about you? Were your dad and mom on the same music page as you? No, not at all. In fact, I would say that my mom was almost a musical. Um, I know. think our generation was different. And with our kids, yeah, I mean, I went to concerts with, I've gone with my kids and I don't ever, ever even think about, of course, I, we never went to a show, but I I just think there was a difference back then. Maybe not, maybe, but it, for me it was. Well, she liked the pop songs of her era. Um, yeah. But, you know, I remember her singing uh, the Jolt and Joe DiMaggio song around the house even <laughs> long after Joe had retired. But that was about the extent of her interest. You know, when I played Bob Dylan, she would say, turn that down, I can't stand him. <laughs> Um, she, she got to the point where she would say, well, okay, I don't really mind the Beatles, but those ishy Rolling Stones. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but now my dad was a, uh, ishy, was, I forgot ishy Rolling Stones. Yeah. <laughs> my, my dad was a big band leader though. Um, he was a musician all his life. In fact, uh, he and his, uh, um, I think it was a, either a trio or a quartet, mm-hmm. um, earned, a passage over to Europe on the Normandy ocean liner when they were juniors in high school by being the, the, the ship's band, um, and then played their way back on the ocean liner coming back. So, um, he had wow. phenomenal experiences as a musician all of his life. When he, uh, um, when he was established in his architectural business in Duluth, uh, around 1960, he put together a, uh, a Dixieland, uh, quintet called the hungry five but his leanings had always been towards bigger arrangements and more instruments he was a trumpet player and so they started adding pieces and they started and then it was the hungry five plus and they ended up being a 25 piece big band and if you were going to book a party and you wanted wanted that kind of music up in duluth for about 20 years they were the band that you hired Mm. um and uh, he was a wonderful trumpet player uh, and so I was always interested in getting his perspective on what he thought about the music I liked. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I always remember playing, uh, and he loved symphony music too. Uh, we had a lot of that playing around the house. Um, and uh, when Eleanor Rigby came out, I thought, here's one he'll like because it's got a string quartet on it. And I played it for him and he, he, he listened and he said, no. yeah, that's fine. 
<laughs> it didn't, wasn't overwhelmed. It wasn't overwhelmed. But what ended up happening is uh, by the late 60s and then definitely into the into the 70s, he realized that the parties that his big band was playing for didn't just want to hear Glenn Miller. They wanted to hear some more contemporary stuff. So they would add a little bit of uh, of Beatles and, uh, oh, uh, I'm, I'm trying to think, oh, well, I know they uh, they used to do some Engelbert Humperdinck, you know, and I don't mean to conflate the two of them. Right, right. But at but least the, he was... A transition. Yes, yeah. and he was willing to listen to contemporary yeah. music and play it. Oh, no, that's... Yeah, well, you come by it then naturally, that's for sure. Rick Shafchek is with us. We're going to let him go here in just a second. I've kept him way too long today, but uh, we'll close all of this up. And I just do want to remind you of a couple of the uh, books, the, the new one particularly, that he has just written is coming out with great reviews. I want to thank our friends over at Star Bank. Minnesota-based bank. Uh, call them today when you get a uh, chance. And see if they answer the phone. That's what they do over there. And then find out more about what they can do for you. Maybe it's a loan with Star Bank. Uh, again, the red tape is minimal with them. It really is. Uh, the monkey business, and not a lot of that going on. So once you apply for a loan, submit your documentation, they get to work on it right away. And there's a lot of things you might be thinking about. Uh, they started out doing the ag loans here in rural Minnesota. Now they're all over the state, certainly here in the metro as well. So whatever it is you're thinking about a loan for, or a banking or financial need, I mean, there's a lot of things, right? Uh, they know how banking should be. But the cool part is they, they treat you like uh, they do every customer. No matter who you are, big or small, uh, you're kind of part of the family. And it's still a family-owned business. And that's what makes it so fun to go there. Plus, I mean, it's a bank. You want them to be good. You want them to be great at what they do, right? And they are. They wouldn't have had all these years of success. They just get it done. That's the bottom line. I would call your local Star Bank branch today. It's our bank here at TalkNorth.com, so I think you should know that. Stop in at your convenience, too. That is not a problem. You want to do it high-tech on the phone with the computer, they have all of that as well. But they really are fun to get to know, and it's still, as I mentioned, that same family. Find out more by just calling your local Star Bank uh, today, your branch, whichever close to you. And stop in when you get a chance. Loans are subject to a loan application approval. Starbank.net, member FDIC, and equal housing lender. Before we let Rick Shefchik uh, sneak away here after a long day with us, um, Davide, anything you want to pop at him here before I let you go? You're a sound engineer. He's a musician. You guys uh, have a lot in common. You know, when um, we started, Dave and I started working together, I brought this sort of idea of, there's a lot of history here in this town, uh, music history that we have to talk about it. And I really appreciate it, you coming on this show, because uh, you revealed so much about our Minnesota music history here. And, uh, and I know that our audience is looking for that because we, we don't talk much about that what happened here in town and what's still happening here in town. I think uh, with a, a different perspective, because I come from Europe and having this music scene here, it, it's, it's unique. And uh, I'm learning more and more every day. And, and not just me, but it's everybody here that listens to this podcast. Well, we just scratched the surface too, as I'm I know. sure you understand, but uh, it, it really was fun to... Um, to get into so many different aspects of of the music that we've experienced here in the state for as long as I've been alive, it's it's been a great place to live. What's next for you, project wise? 
Well, I have a, a novel that I've finished that uh, I'm, I'm hoping uh, to get published soon. I have an agent marketing it. It's a, it's a political thriller based on real things that happened in Minneapolis back in the 20s and 30s. Mm. Oh, Based on, on real people. There was a couple of uh, murders of journalists that happened back then. And I, Yes. Yeah. In fact, the uh, Star Tribune did a story uh, on Sunday that is essentially the synopsis of the novel that I wrote. That's wild. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I, I read that article because I'm familiar with uh, Kid Can in that case. Kid Can, Floyd yep. Olson, yes. Yep, and then uh, in St. Paul you had a number of mobsters, but apparently if they played nice, then they let them be there. Is, is my, well, they were mostly bank robbers in St. Paul. Uh, and my book is about actual mobsters, people yeah. that were in organized crime who profited from um, from prostitution and bootlegging in particular. They were here the whole time. Uh, the St. Paul guys sort of came in and out. Yeah. And as you point out, the cops didn't hassle them as long as they didn't rob St. Paul banks. And that story has been pretty well covered, you know, in a yeah. number of books. Mm -hmm. The what happened in Minneapolis, I think, is more sinister, and uh, um, there hasn't been a book about it except the one that was written by um, uh, Walter Liggett's daughter, um, who wrote about the murder of her father. But this is going to be a novel. This is a novel. Okay. Had to change the names because there's just not enough, you know, I can't connect A to B to C to D to get to Z. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's pretty clear to me if you do... Uh, if you do the figuring, what must have happened to lead to these murders? And so I've uh, I've filled in the blanks, I guess you could say. Well, we'll, we'll look forward to uh, when you, you announce that this will be out. And then when it goes to Netflix, you can control the music that they play on it. <laughs> exactly. I, I would love to because having a, a dad who grew up as a big band fan, I love the music of the 20s and 30s. And, uh, you know, that's... Um, I, I may never have been able to convince him that the stuff I was listening to was that great, but he certainly convinced me that what he was listening to was good. <laughs> so, so, so dad's dead, yes. right? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, Rick, great having you here. Great seeing you again, and uh, we'll look forward to this. But the current books are available on um, Amazon or bookstores. And all or local bookstores, yes. Yeah, so just check that out. Electric Fetus is where you introduced it. And you did a, one in Duluth, and you went did one down here in the uh, Twin Cities, and both were uh, marvelously attended. Yes. Yes. Add. Go to local bookstores. Yeah, they're fun, yeah, and 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 going to the record stores and paging through the vinyl like we used to do. Yes. Back in the day and reading the liner notes and all that sort of thing, which is a whole subject by itself. Liner notes, I guess. Rick, thank you. Thank you. I really thank enjoyed you so doing much. this. This is a lot of fun. Rick Shefchek, our guest here on my first concert, Davide and Dave. We're back next week again. And I want you to join us. And again, all it is is Spotify or Apple. Yeah, it's simple enough to go to or talknorth.com where we have a lot of great podcasts, by the way. All brought to you by Aquarius Home Services, by UCARE, by the Chanhassen Dinner Theater, by starbank.net, and of course, brought to you by Minnesota Propane Association. We'll see you next time on my first concert. <laughs>